We were in the heart of a cypress dome when from the quiet water around us we heard a distinctive growl. It was a warm Saturday afternoon, overcast and not muggy. After hours of marching around Lettuce Lake, my companions and I had arrived at our final spot. I had requested to go to Lettuce Lake almost exclusively for a moment like this. At the end of our afternoon hike, we had found a wonderfully mysterious spot in the heart of this cypress dome. Lettuce Lake itself is a beautiful park with several hiking trails and an incredible nature center right in the heart of it. There's also picnic tables and playgrounds for families to spend the afternoon in the middle of summer. But now, in the middle of this cypress dome, we had discovered something very mysterious. Cypress domes are an incredible southern ecosystem. They're common anywhere cypress trees grow, such as our fellow swampy neighbors like Georgia and Louisiana, but nowhere has quite as many cypress domes as Florida. The name dome is a literal description. The way that this cypress forest grows creates a distinct low-rising dome shape from a distance. This is because the cypress domes typically grow around heavily flooded areas, so higher cypress trees sprout up in the center of the source of water, likely a thick swamp. The trees there rise higher in that heavier water area, and as the water gets shallower at the edges of the swamp, the cypress trees are shorter, creating that distinctive rounded shape. It's one of those incredible things that nature just created these protected bubbles of land and water and tree that create what is basically a natural fortress, inaccessible both on foot or by boat. Out here at Lettuce Lake, most of the prominent trails you can take are, in fact, boardwalks, crossing over cypress swamps or lakeside shores, protecting the muddy ecosystem below from being paved or overtread. The Cypress Dome Trail is the same way, but it also is a little further away from the more populated parts of the park, where families were gathering and having barbecues on a beautiful June day. We had been walking for a while with no other people around when we finally arrived to the dome, crossed the fortress threshold, and entered the cypresses' circumference. It was a little muggier in here and a little darker, the bugs flitting by our heads and bumping into our legs. When we reached the platform deeper in the dome, we stopped and sat quietly, waiting. The sights in the middle were nothing special. It was cypresses and water and shadow, but it was still, the air thick and humid. And then from the quiet came the sound. I immediately turned on my microphone. So there's, yeah, there's one back there. There's one close here that I think is smaller, maybe younger, because he's he's higher up. I can't see him though. It started out as one sound, a repeated grunt, and then it was several grunts. Some were louder, some were closer, but soon we realized we were facing a wall of sound. Four or five individual animals barking at us from the thick waters of the Cypress Dome. Now, we are three Floridians, all of us hikers, all of us familiar with the outdoors, so we immediately grinned at each other, aware of the crew of animals out in the dark. They weren't a threat to us. They were our friendly neighborhood alligators. 
alligators have a few distinct sounds, many of which I am glad to say I have not heard in person. The most distinct and frightening is a sound called a bellow. It is a deep, grumbling growl that almost sounds like burbling from their throats. It's often done by male alligators and includes an infrasound that can be heard by the females. It acts as a mating call for them. They even enter an arched posture to denote their interest. The Tampa Bay Times has reported that alligators actually have been tuned. Apparently, the sound they make is a B-flat, but the grunts we were hearing? This is a common sound, usually denoting territory or a warning of their presence to other animals in the area, i.e. the three of us. I've heard this sound a million times, out kayaking, walking by lakes and rivers, on trails, on islands, even once on a hiking trail which resulted in me walking at a much faster pace. But I know that sound, I'm not afraid of that sound, it's just part of the symphony of Florida nature that I love so dearly. Yet every time I hear the bark of an alligator I have the same image in my mind. I can just imagine the colonists from Spain arriving to this peninsula, the same ones who were terrified of the mosquitoes, hearing the bark and growl of this big lizard, which they literally named El Lagarto, which literally means the lizard. They had a respect for it, but a fear as well. Whatever was out there could be their doom. There were monsters out there in the woods, and if the stories are true, there still are. In the waters of Lettuce Lake, perhaps. Florida's own Bigfoot still lurks out of sight. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. I don't know about you, but one of my favorite parts of summer are scary stories and folk tales, where monsters still haunt our local woods. This week, we're returning to the story and taking a deeper dive into the history of Florida's most famous monster, the skunk ape, the different versions of him in our state, and how many mysteries still wait in the dark. Before we go into the mysteries, I want to tell you about this week's sponsor. This week's episode of Wait 5 Minutes is brought to you by A Trombo Creative. A Trombo Creative is owned and operated by my dear friend of over a decade, Annie. Annie has been designing and costuming professionally for six years and even did costumes for yours truly throughout my years in theater. Through close collaboration, cohesive design, and hands-on fittings, together you and Annie can create the perfect costume for your production, cosplay, special event, or photo shoot. She turns your ideas and inspirations into a wearable reality. You can check out more of her work on Instagram at atrombo.creative, and you can book your appointment at her website, atrombocreative.com. There are links to both of those in the description of this episode. Thank you to Atrombo Creative for sponsoring this episode and season of Wait 5 Minutes. All right, now sit back and settle in for a good old-fashioned campfire tale. begin in the dark forests of Oregon. Today, most Americans know of Sasquatch, but many do not know where the story of Sasquatch really begins. The title actually comes from a word used by First Nations in the Pacific Northwest for generations. In their language, which is called Hulk Amalem, the term wild man was translated to Sasquets. The idea of a massive, bipedal, hairy monster living in the woods is a story that has lived in the collective conscious of human civilization for centuries, but started to become a trend in the 19th century. That was when explorers in the Himalayas started recounting tales of a yeti. Then, in the 1930s, a journalist in the Pacific Northwest named J.W. Burns coined the term Sasquatch, adapted from the word he was hearing spoken by the Chahalas people in British Columbia. 
but sightings had existed of this creature across the country. Sometimes they were called apes, and sometimes it was just the sighting of what some described as a massive human-looking footprint, which naturally led to his more common title, Bigfoot. In the past century, the idea of Bigfoot has gained popularity thanks to many things, but mostly the famous Patterson-Gimlin film, wherein a large hairy creature apparently walks through a field in Northern California. Since then, Bigfoot has been spotted in every state in the country. The West Coast, especially Oregon, has become the hotspot for sightings, especially anywhere that is mountainous and forested has loads of reports of Bigfoot. I myself am a huge fan of the myth and have genuinely read loads about the story in the last couple years. In college, I forced a group of friends to walk deep into the Appalachian Mountains in search of Bigfoot. Hopefully in the next few months, I'll be visiting my former roommate in Washington to take another trip in search of Bigfoot, but I've searched for Bigfoot in Florida as well. That is not as easy as it sounds. You know, national parks attract a lot of attention from Bigfoot enthusiasts. The Smoky Mountains National Park in Tennessee and the Olympic National Park in Washington State carry much of the lore around where Bigfoot resides. In Florida, the Everglades National Park carries the central lore of our own Bigfoot, the perfectly named skunk ape for his distinctive smell. Sometimes called the Cabbage Man, it's because he smells so bad that he usually wears the title of skunk ape. That's how it goes if you live in mud all the time. But as I have recently learned, Florida's Bigfoot or Bigfoots or Big Feet, whichever you prefer, are not so easy to find. Obviously, Sasquatch is famously elusive, but on top of that, there's more than one Bigfoot in Florida. You can look everywhere and find some version of the story of Skunk Ape. I went searching for a lesser known one in a town just north of the Ocala National Forest. Hurricane Elsa had just come and gone when I piled up my car to head toward the town of Barden, Florida. I've been doing the show for over three years now, and because of that, I've spent plenty of time in and around the Ocala National Forest. It was the first place I truly visited to write an episode about, so it will always hold a soft spot in my heart. When I realized my destination was just north of the forest, I knew I needed to chart my route through the woods. The rain came and went, gray and swift, leaving the air thick. Once I passed through Ocala and turned the corner on the west edge of Palatka, I traveled into the thick woods that surrounded the town of Barden. Barden was incorporated around the turn of the century and was named after the first settler that set up his home there. His name was Hazard Barden. Hazard operated a turpentine mill in the area, part of the massive turpentine industry in that area at the time. The town today is sleepy. Construction on the northern edge of Barden Road has made it a one-lane road, slowing passage through the town. The main shop in Barden is called Bud's Grocery. It was quiet when I visited, the doors to the mechanic shop sitting open. If you drive far enough north along Barden Road past town, you'll eventually reach a four-way intersection. Other than the road you are on, the other three options are all dirt roads. That was the end of the line for me. The trees on the side of the roadway have low standing water on either side with very little sunlight passing through. The town itself was not unlike any other country town I've had to pass through since I started this show, but the forest around it feels dark and haunting. It's no surprise that Barden has become the home of their very own Sasquatch story, but he does not bear the name as his relative to the south does. No, he is not called Skunk Ape, he is called the Barden Booger. 
A fantastic article from the Florida Times Union catalogs much of the lore connected to the Barden Booger. They note that one of the earliest recorded sightings of the Booger is from 1947. That sighting described the Booger as, quote, a very tall man in a long raincoat, end quote. That coat, according to the tale, turned out to be fur. Some reports of the story say that the booger may have been an escaped circus monkey, though similar reports always seem to float around Florida for some reason. One report says that the booger was spotted by the massive Baptist church in the northern part of town, silently moving through a cypress pond. Another report says that the Barden booger has a disgusting odor, which of course is a detail shared by the skunk ape. According to the Times Union, the people of Barden are very fond of their local legend, selling merchandise and writing songs about him. He is a friendly monster, beloved and celebrated by his neighbors, even though he is certainly one of the least famous of Florida's cryptids. And there's a lot in common between the Barden Booger story and the story of our skunk ape. In case you are unfamiliar with the skunk ape himself, he is often seen in the Everglades. There is in fact a building called the Skunk Ape Headquarters that details many of the reports and accounts of people spotting skunk ape in the greater Everglades and Big Cypress area. People have been seeing him there for decades. It's an amazing story. And like I said, he is known for being smelly, known for haunting the Everglades, and known for being famously elusive. For my guest this week, however, he has collected a story of the skunk ape in a not-so-common spot. My name is Brad Bertelli. I am a Florida Keys uh, historian, speaker, and author. I currently curate the Keys History and Discovery Center, which is a museum in Isla Morada. We opened in 2013, so I've, been, I've had the privilege of uh, creating a museum from scratch, which has been awesome. While working for the local paper a few years back, an editor told Brad his very first Key West skunk ape story. When I was um, writing for a local paper, the editor had told me about this event that happened in 1977. And so in July of 1977, there was a skunk ape sighting on Key Largo. If you're familiar with Key Largo, uh, basically Snapper's restaurant about mile marker 95 is kind of where that whole event took place. And it happened over a two-week period. Huh. And it wasn't and it wasn't just it was a father and son who were out uh, collecting bottles on the you know the edge of the island and going to the mangroves when they saw something up in the distance and it had a bad smell and it stood up and it was eight feet tall and um, it kind of haunted their house for a, a couple days, so much so that, I mean, at one point, they cut back all the bushes around, around the house, like 30 feet, so, you know, they'll be visible. And that night, the wife, you know, looks out the jealousy windows and sees the skunk ape staring back in. And, and this guy was, you know, a Vietnam vet. He was not, you know, not just some kook in the keys. The family was scared enough that they, they the, the wife, after after a couple of days, packed up the kids and left and left the mainland. Wow! And the police investigated. I think the National Acquirer came down and, and did a story. Sure. And it was it was just a and the story was you know it was in the papers for a couple of days. And in the 1970s, there was this rash of skunk ape sightings in South Florida, and this was the southernmost. The southernmost sighting and it, it was just a great story and I, and I wrote about it i don't know nine eight nine years ago eight years ago and it was just an amazing story allow me to put on my paranormal nerd cap and, and tell you this story 
The tale of the Key Largo skunk ape bears an uncanny resemblance to one of the most popular and easily my favorite cryptid story of all time, the Mothman. Over the period of a year in the late 60s in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, townsfolk were plagued by countless paranormal events, from UFOs to men in black to the persistent appearance of an unusual winged figure that became affectionately known as the Mothman. Author John Keel wrote the incredible book The Mothman Prophecies about the research he did into the town and details how it felt like a frenzy swept through the citizens, with everyone wrapped up in the confusion and panic of the mysterious things happening in that town. The Mothman, however, suddenly disappeared when the Silver Bridge collapsed in the middle of town. It was a bizarre, year-long frenzy, and the story of Skunk Ape in Key Largo reminds me of that story a lot, especially because the Skunk Ape sightings, just like the Mothman sightings, suddenly just stopped. Did the Skunk Ape appearances just stop all of a sudden after like an intense period of time? Yeah, there was um, the, the neighbor saw it, you know, kind of uh, hiding in a shed or, you know, kind of crouched underneath a shed. And then what was really horrible and disappointing about the accounts in the newspaper that was called The Reporter was that, you know, week one, it was the skunk apes here. And week two, there's a follow-up story. And then week three, there is a, a story that, you know, this group of four Tavernier guys get together with their, their guns and their flashlights and their anti-snake venom kit you know kits and they're going on this skunk ape hunt that night to look for it and, and, and the end of the story in the paper is you know come back next week for you know for what happens and the story never gets published or never gets told so we never find out what happens with the skunk ape expedition and you never found anything you never found the conclusion of that no i i i, I try to look for the the gentlemen who are named but this was, you know, 40 years ago. Oh, man. So, so it's, you know, it's so, and I tried to find the, uh, the, uh, the family, uh, Hockeyman, Hockeyman, Hokeman, something like that. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, um, from the initial sighting. And I could never find any, you know, corroboration of, or, or finding any of those people. But it's, you know, it, it was 40 years ago. Now, the skeptics listening to that story will hear that and maybe get suspicious. How can Brad be so convinced of this story when there's little to work on? Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a believer. Right. I, I think that, you know, there's every, you know, six of the seven continents have recorded some kind of, you know, hairy hominid, you know, creature. <laughs> most, of, most of the, you know, Native American cultures all have a hairy man or some kind of, some variation mythology so there, i mean it's it's not like you know it happened in the 70s and then that's when it started and that's when it ended it's always been going on i mean it's it's been going on for hundreds of years so i am a believer um back in the 70s key largo wasn't quite as populated as it is today it is the largest of the florida keys and there's lots of of especially you know 40 years ago lots of of avenues for something of that size to venture down from the everglades um, and onto the island. Um, I believe that, you know, I, I, I believe that it happens. I believe uh, it, it seemed legitimate. Even the sheriff and the police officers, officers who investigated were convinced that, that something was going on and the family was too disturbed for it to be a hoax. Wow. 
Brad has also written another book, a historical fiction, wherein a group called the Southernmost Skunk Ape Society collects the various accounts of the Bigfoot stories throughout the Keys, some real and some imagined by Brad. Some are interwoven with real events and Keys histories, and some are based on unusual true stories that Brad found in newspapers. And this is an actual um, newspaper article that came out in August, on August 29th, 1874. What? And this, this says, uh, it's a little, a little piece in the paper, Key West has a ghost covered with hair and about the size of a horse. And when you think about that, what does that sound like? That's exactly Bigfoot. That's <laughs> so funny. Oh, that's so cr- Key West is so far south. Yes, but that that is a real newspaper clipping, and I, and I have a copy of the newspaper in the book. There's so much to explore in this relationship, and Brad is eager to find what other connections Skunk Ape has to his beloved Florida Keys. Brad doesn't think this is yet another community of skunk apes in Florida. He thinks that like panthers and bears can move from the Everglades to the Keys, so too can the skunk ape. They are animals, after all. And Brad is a pro. He tells me of a Bigfoot variation in Florida that I've never even heard of. And how about the how about the two-egg stump jumper? The what? The, the two-egg stump jumper as well. That's two-egg, as in the number two, and egg, as in a bird egg. And then there is this mini version of a Bigfoot that is associated with Two Eggs, Florida, which is a really small town just northwest of Tallahassee. And there are, and, and, and eyewitnesses describe it as kind of like a hobbit or a mini, a mini Bigfoot. Oh. But a great story. But there's one more area of skunk ape sightings that I have to talk about. It's one of my favorites. It's perhaps the most famous sighting of the skunk ape in Florida, and it's in the greater Gulf Coast region. In Sarasota in 2000, the story goes that a woman sent in two photographs to the local police that she took in her backyard of a mysterious creature. I've seen this image countless times. It is very spooky, no matter if you believe it or not. The creature in the photograph is large and wild. It seems to be a primate with a panicked expression on its face and seemingly bared teeth. It is the closest to significant proof as I've ever seen, but Brad is less convinced. That particular photo you're talking about looks like an orangutan to me. It I mean, does. look at an orangutan. It's standing behind some. It's standing behind some kind of palm frond, and it looks. I mean, I, I think that's an escaped orangutan. It's every but, time I see, but it's still kind of a freaky photo, isn't it? It freaks me. It out. is. It is. But uh, but that you know that one in particular, I mean, I believe. No, there are, there of course, some evidence is better than others. Some pictures are better than others. It's hard, of course, to know if anything is certain, especially when you want so badly for it to be real. I'm not unconvinced that that's skunk ape, but maybe Brad's right. Maybe it is just a very frightened orangutan. If you haven't seen that picture, look it up. It's something else. But even if that evidence is not the most compelling, The one that always trips me up was actually taken where this episode started, in Tampa's Lettuce Lake. In January of 2015, a video popped up on the internet noted as skunk ape evidence. I remember where I was when I first saw it in the basement of my college's library. I was immediately transfixed. 
When you love Bigfoot sightings, you watch every video or overanalyze every photo, hoping it's the one that settles your doubts or the doubts of skeptics around you. This video was that evidence for me. A canoeist named Matthew McCamey was out on the waters of Lettuce Lake and popped out his camera, believing he was looking at a lone black bear in the swamps of Greater Tampa. He filmed it for a few minutes, and after a few seconds of quietly drifting along, watching, the creature began to move. It was immediately clear that it was not a bear. At least it looks that way to me. It's hunched over, its arms are long, and it is far too tall moving through the water to be a bear. Its entire form appears to be that of a large, ambulatory, bipedal creature. The man behind the camera is audibly startled when he sees the creature stand to full height. I've watched this video so many times in the last six years, and it still gives me a chill every single time. You can just imagine filming this video and wondering what that is, what you're seeing. My logical mind, the mind that wants to listen to some sort of accepted reasoning, comes up with solutions. It's a hoax, it's a bear, or an actual primate in the Florida wild, but like Brad said, we've been seeing Bigfoot across the world for centuries. Why couldn't he be in the swamps of Florida as well? We have so many other incredible monsters hiding in our water, why not a Sasquatch? Brad tells me, and I've noticed this as well, that it seems like Bigfoot has never been more popular. People seem to be more willing to let themselves consider broader ideas, like ghosts and UFOs and Bigfoot, in a way they hadn't before. You can explore if you believe and find enthusiastic, friendly faces waiting to chat about that with you. All of my friends are interested in talking about this subject with me, and for that, I am grateful. Mysterious Happenings, it seems, has a knack for bringing people together. Centuries ago, that mystery was a point of fear. It could be that that lizard bellowing from the dark water was going to be your doom. But today, in a world where mysteries are starting to be few and far between, the unknown things become our puzzle to solve, the forest to enter where anything can be waiting within. That is a comforting thing. Maybe waiting out there in the wood is a Bigfoot, or a booger, or a stump jumper, or even our very own friendly hairy hominid, the skunk ape. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you are here. If you're brand new to the show, or even if this is your first episode, welcome. There are some amazing stories waiting for you. This is our first sort of follow-up episode, so go back and listen to the Skunk Ape episode. It's almost three years old, which is why I've come back to do it again. It's just such an exciting story, and you can bet your bottom dollar we will be covering them again in the future. It's just too special to me, and to other Floridians as well. Season 7 of Wait 5 Minutes is brought to you by A Trombo Creative. Turn your ideas and inspirations into a wearable reality. Go book your appointment at atrombocreative.com. And thank you again to A Trombo Creative for sponsoring this episode and season of Wait 5 Minutes. If you're looking for more Wait 5 Minutes, there is a website just for you. Go to wfmpod.com for transcripts of current episodes, additional photographs related to the stories, and photos from my trips around the state. I will be including some of the amazing, fascinating photographs and videos of the Skunk Ape from around the state in this episode. Go check out the website for all of those. Head to wfmpod.com for more. 
You can pick up Wait 5 Minutes merchandise at Cast and Clay on Etsy. Cast and Clay is run by one of my best friends, Sophie Aparicio, who designed each of these stickers alongside the rest of their catalog. We've got a Drink More Water sticker using a photograph from our friend Lauren Nix, a Wait 5 Minutes sticker in the shape of Florida, and a sticker featuring the show's subtitle about Florida by a Floridian in a vintage citrus crate style. Grab them individually or as a set of three at Cast and Clay on Etsy. Head to the link in the description to pick up your WFM merch now. If you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review below. It helps the show become more visible, and it means a lot to me. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com. I am looking for episodes for next season, especially some spooky episodes for our October episodes. If you have any ideas, send them my way, and you can follow my personal account on Twitter at WFMNick. I look forward to hearing from you. I'd like to give a very special thank you to Brad Bertelli. You can check out his museum and some of his books on Amazon. I've included a link to his books. They are so much fun. Brad is the best. I hope to have him on the show again in the future. I'm planning a big trip to Key West sometime in the next couple months to go visit all of the friends I've made down there. And Brad's museum is certainly at the top of the list. You will definitely hear more from Brad Bertelli in the future. Thank you again to him for helping out in this episode. And go check out his book. Next week, the story of the 1998 firestorms and how wildfires and prescribed burns affect our ecosystem every single day. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. If you are able to get vaccinated, please look into it to help protect your neighbors and community. And please drink more water. Take care. <laughs>